Hello and welcome to episode 195 of AvTalk. This is only the 950th time we've tried to get this intro right. And I'm here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. And that was a much more assertive intro this time. Thank you. It's the end of the year. We have no care left to give. We literally tried to get that intro for this was the third time. Third so time. So we, we did it okay. Not that bad. Third we time. made it and we're here. How are you, Jason? I'm good. I am back in New York. I even popped into our office for probably the last time today. I believe today is the shortest daylight day of the year. It so is. I, I am depressed, but things are looking up as of tomorrow. Yeah, the days are going to get longer. Not until a massive storm absolutely obliterates winter travel for pretty much everyone in the US. Yeah. Before we talk about that, let's talk about last week's travel because you you said you're back in New York. Where did you go? I was in the one, the only St. Martin. I phoned it in quite literally last week and I came back on Saturday, which happened to be the first day of daily winter operations down to St. Martin. And let me tell you, Ian, that place was a zoo coming home. You sent me a photo, I believe, of the departure hall, and it looked packed. St. Martin's Airport, they are still rebuilding after the hurricane in like 2017, 2018. It's been a while. I don't remember exactly what year it was, but I mean, it's very much still a temporary operation in the terminal building, at least now. Thankfully, they're not in tents anymore. But they have, I think, really realistically, like six or seven functional gates. They're all hard stands. And when our flight went out, it happened to be the peak when there were just a bunch of flights going out to the US and it was overwhelmingly overcrowded, like nothing I've experienced before. Like I mentioned, this was the first Saturday where a lot of airlines rolled their schedule over from a Saturday-only schedule to a daily operation. And a lot of airlines were starting their service at all for the season that time of year. Like I think Spirit from Fort Lauderdale, that was their first flight of the season, I believe. And it was just uh, overwhelming, I'll put it. Yeah. The photo showed quite a number of fine people. And and I believe that the photo you sent me was just after your flight had been delayed. And one of the gentlemen in the photo was he didn't look less happy. than enthusiastic about that yeah, information. Yeah. I flew in on JetBlue on an all economy A321, which is fine, except the Wi-Fi was out of coverage for the whole flight and the CPAC entertainment did not work at all. But it was a fine flight. I came prepared with my own entertainment. That was a seven-year-old aircraft. It had not held up well. It, it was beat up. Things were run down. It just generally looked like JetBlue had not given that aircraft more than like two hours on the ground at any point in the last seven years. Not great. The flight back was on a nearly 31-year-old Delta 757-200. And although that aircraft is 31 years old, it is Delta's 30th oldest aircraft, I think. I think it was the 30th aircraft, but it still looks brand new on the interior. They have done such a remarkable job refurbishing those aircraft repeatedly. And it was just a really nice ride once I actually got on board the aircraft. And there's a funny story about that, which I guess I should tell, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, feel free. So very limited connectivity in St. Martin in the airport. You get like 30 minutes of free Wi-Fi and then you're, you're cut off. It's like, got to be one of the last airports in the world that still charges for Wi-Fi at all. But we're all waiting at the boarding gate. It's getting 
really hot, really crowded, a bunch of people in wheelchairs ready to go at the boarding door. And we wait, we wait, we wait. And the flight to Atlanta, also on an elderly 757, starts boarding to our left. And they announce our flight has gone uh, gone tech. There's a maintenance issue. They'll get back to us in the dreaded 15 minutes, which is never 15 minutes. It's just that's the next time you'll get an update. And I happened to spy the pilots that actually came in on that 757 who were loitering around waiting for a ride back to Atlanta. And I walked over to them and said, hey, guys, uh, what's going on with this aircraft? And they said, well, how much do you know about airplanes? I said, well, hit me with whatever you got. And they told me they got a, an, a message on the, the screen that they had never seen before, a stab trim issue. So stabilizer trim, which basically means that one of the systems that automatically controls the horizontal stabilizer had an issue and they weren't sure whether they could defer that issue and deal with it at, back at JFK after the flight or if that's something they would have to attend to there at St. Martin, which could be uh, problematic because there were a number of aircraft with mechanical issues there at that time. Another American one from Miami, a 737, had mechanical issues. That whole week was just plagued with aircraft on ground issues. St. Martin JetBlue had a flight delayed overnight there. They had to fly in an A320 from Fort Lauderdale. And then the next day's flight went out to the runway, went back to the gate. So I don't know what was going on in St. Martin, but a lot of broken airplanes. So I asked the pilots, well, what would you do? Should I move over to this Atlanta flight, connect there to JFK, or should I wait this one out? And they didn't really have an answer because they didn't know if they could defer this or if they were going to have to repair it. So I paid for the Wi-Fi, got a prompt on the Delta app right away saying, hey, we found some alternative flights for you. One of the options was, really the only option was get on the Atlanta flight, connect there, and get to JFK around midnight. And I said, you know what? I'd rather... I won't gamble it. I'll switch to the Atlanta flight, connect at JFK. If I miss that connection, whatever. I'll deal with that in Atlanta. I'd rather be stranded overnight in Atlanta than have to find a hotel with very limited availability in St. Martin. So I clicked it. It confirmed. Great. We got new seats. And then I looked at the details and saw that it was for the next day, which is not great when you're already at the airport looking to get out. So I take full responsibility for not quite reading the details enough, but my feedback for Delta would be that if you're providing alternative options for travelers, if the flight that they're looking at alternatively is a different day, it needs to be explicitly clear. And there should even be a warning saying like, hey, you're changing your day of travel to the following day. Because it was the same exact flight. It was the, the flight that was to Atlanta it was boarding to my left. I thought I was going to just rebook that, take two steps to my left, and then board that flight immediately. But it was the next day. Not great. And the app would not let me book back to the JFK flight. No one at St. Martin at the gate was willing to help me. Most of the help there is, is outsourced to Signature Air Services, and, and they're all contracted out. They had no time to deal with that, nor did they want to go out of their way. So there I am calling over the Wi-Fi, the Delta reservations desk, which did pick up rather quickly, I think only a few minutes. And I explained my situation. They go, oh, okay, I see. And they got put me on hold. And then <laughs> finally, I was able to find uh, the one lone Delta actual employee at the gate, uh, Jermaine, thank you again, who uh, after a bit of, of scolding me about being more careful with my rebooking options, went uh, <laughs> clicky, clicky, clicky on the keyboard and 30 seconds later, problem solved. And I was back on the flight and boarded. Immediately after that, they started boarding uh, the JFK flight. So that was fun. But I'm going to be more careful the next time that happens. 
So I wanted Jason to tell a story, not because I wanted to embarrass him on recording, because he never listens to the podcast. Done anyway. So, so done. he won't know if anyone you know laughs at this particular misfortune. But I wanted him to tell a story because, yeah, I, I think it's a good point that if you're rebooking, because I like to think of Jason generally as relatively smart human being. Oh, thank and you. As someone who deals with you know these types of apps and websites and rebookings and, and things like that on a regular basis, I trust if you're having an issue, you're probably not the only one. Yeah. And I happened to take a screenshot of the confirmation page as it was loading because I don't know, the Wi-Fi that was kind of shaky and I wanted to make sure I had it. And it does say in like the little, little tab above the actual flight information, like Sunday, December 18th or whatever, but it's small. It's very easy to miss. And yeah, word of caution for anyone who who finds themselves in that situation. Not a problem for me. We would have, you know, booked a, a hotel in St. Martin, not the end of the world, not the worst place in the world to get stranded. But if it happens to me, I'm sure it will happen to someone else if if it hasn't already happened before. And I'm sure it has. There you go. So let's move on to well, I guess it wasn't bad news because everything worked out in in the yeah, It was great. We were only like two and a half hours late, no big yeah. deal. There you go. So let's move on to elsewhere. And I guess first to Washington State, where we have good news, but bittersweet still, I guess. I'm still processing this, Jason. Where are we going with this? I don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> Finally, sure you do. It's written on the it's it's on the list. You skipped over winter is coming. Oh, I did. I did. Yeah, see, it's not me, it's you. Oh man, this is the last podcast of the year. It's just Yeah, anything goes killing me, man. All right. Well, let's go back. Bad news first. Winter is coming. Winter will have gotten here by the time the podcast comes out. So things will be... As you listen to this, I hope you are not traveling. And if you are traveling, I am so very sorry. There is a very, very large winter storm moving through the US as if you're traveling in the US, as you very well know, because you're either comfortable at home preparing for the weekend and perhaps a holiday, or you're stuck in an airport listening to this going, guys, stop talking about this because I hate my life right now. So the big winter storm is moving through desperately cold temperatures, insanely high winds. Everyone's getting their snow plows out, their salt spreaders, all that good fun stuff. So when we come back in January to talk about it, hopefully we can say, oh, that was a, a whole big nothing. But in Iceland, that has not been the case this week, where there was enough snow to close the roads to and from the airport, which led to some very interesting things, including... Iceland Air operating Reykjavik to Reykjavik 757 uh -huh. flights. Yeah, I think there was at least one 757, and I know there were a few Dash 8 flights as well. Yep. But I think there's only like one road between Reykjavik and way out to the airport. There's like the road to get there. And Iceland yes. Air needed to get staff to the airport and from the airport. But with the only road closed, they actually resorted to operating shuttle flights between Reykjavik and Reykjavik. And if you've ever seen the, the small downtown airport, RKV, you probably know that a 757 doesn't really – it physically fits there, but it is not a normal sight to behold there, especially in Iceland Air 75. And it's unfortunate that it came down to that, but a really, really nice thinking on your toes maneuver by Iceland Air. I was pretty impressed that they they managed to to get the seven. I mean, obviously they can do it; it's within limits. But I was just really. I saw some pictures of it, and I was like, that it, it just looks so out of place. But things seem to be moving in the right direction there. The roads are being cleared. I mean, it was 
hundreds of flights canceled, snow everywhere, not a great time. So I'm hoping that, that we avoid that this weekend. Yeah, 12 minute flight time between the two airports, by the way. They basically made a right turn immediately after departure, made a straight line, then made a left turn, and that was their final approach turn for uh, RKV. So, not a very complicated flight, but probably pretty busy for the flight crew. That's a lot of checklists and a lot of, in a very short time. Did they, do you think they even retracted the gear? They must have, right? They had to have. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. Okay. That's fun. Yeah, I wonder. We'll see if we can find out whether whether or not the gear came up. Okay, now we can move on to the other stuff. This was the first flight of the last produced 747 over the weekend. It came up over the weekend and spotters flocked to Payne Field to try and get a photo. And our good friend uh, Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren was among them and was able to... Those are on the Flight Radar 24 Twitter feed we shared them on. And you can check those out. Some, some really good kind of dramatic weather photos, I guess. Not just clear blue sky. Though though planes are nice to look at. I always like when there's a bit of a background. Yeah, just not all just blue or all white or anything. Some variation in the background is nice. Yeah. But again, this is disappointingly the first flight of the last 747. Nothing. They published no images. They made no to do about it. Again, it's like they want they didn't even publish a, a flight plan well ahead of time. Usually, uh, spotters have a good heads up that something is going to happen, but this one went out quite sneakily. I don't think it went out to Moses Lake like it was uh, actually filed. It came back to Payne Field rather quickly. Again, it, I just find it very strange that there's just not much to do about the last 747 doing things like rolling out of the factory and first flight for the last time. These are all things that I would expect to see imagery put out by Boeing, and there's just not not much. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they're saving it all up for the delivery. It's possible. That's, that's all I can finger, fingers crossed that there's just a big celebration that we're not invited to for the, uh, the delivery yeah. of this aircraft. Bummer. Boeing, on the other hand, has received some good news this week. Two bits of good news, not just Two one. Two bits of good news. One very large bit of good news. So the will they, won't they seems to have been answered about whether or not Boeing will get an extension to certify the 737-7 and-10 max without the new a new crew alerting system that has been filed in the omnibus bill is basically a if it's in this bill it has to pass compendium of legislation and so that is going up to a vote on Thursday i believe barring any changes and at this point, it would be extremely surprising if this somehow didn't happen. So it looks like Boeing is set to get its extension to certify the MAX 7 and 10, and then eventually go back and retrofit all of the aircraft with the new systems that have been developed for the MAX 10, which include the stick shaker and the angle, uh, third angle of attack sensor. Yes, and that's all a part of the uh, the Cantwell bill, I guess, or the amendment or whatever we want to call this, that it is not just a blanket extension as I believe some of the Republican delegation wanted earlier. This is more of, we're going to approve this, but you have to make it right. You have to do these things and you have to pay for it if you want it to get done. I, we talked about this a few weeks ago and my comments were no notes and my comment continues to be no notes. Well done. 
There you go. Just pass the damn thing. Yeah, <laughs> so we can stop talking about it. The other bit of good news for Boeing is that 777X test flights have resumed. The flight test program was suspended. The last flight was October 6th, and there was an engine issue. They took the engine off the wing. They sent it to GE's facility in Ohio. They said, Something happened. We still don't know what exactly the issue was, but whatever the issue, it's either been understood and won't happen again or understood and resolved because on December 17th, so a few days ago from from today, they began flight tests once again. So they've flown a handful of times since then and in fact, I believe are in the air as we record right now. Hey, that's good. We were kind of afraid. That this could be a, a very lengthy process to figure out what happened and correct it. But I guess if they're flying, they're either test flying the fix or they've already fixed it, which is great news for an aircraft that really needs less bad news. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully things continue to look up for the 777X. Also looking up as far as getting guidance, the European Union Aviation Safety Agency has proposed the kind of rule for certifying the Airbus A321XLR. We talked a lot about the A321XLR last week, including our interview with the Airbus flight test engineer about their test flight and mentioned the FAA's certification issues as well. EASA coming out with some clear guidance saying, you guys need to make sure that if there's a crash, enough fuel will not spill to start a massive fire near the the engines and the wings. Hmm. So Airbus Once again, is going no notes. That's, uh, figure that out. That's a good policy. Yeah, I mean, plan, good way to say things. And so they will do that or the aircraft won't get certified at this point is basically how things are looking. So still waiting on a, a kind of a, a final ruling on that, but, but that is the certification proposal from, from EASA. Earlier this week, a Hawaiian Airlines A330 operating from Phoenix to Honolulu suffered what can only be described as, wow, that's bad turbulence. It's not necessarily the the standard classification, working our way from light chop to uh, severe turbulence, but it, it was very, very not good. 36 people were injured, 20 were taken to hospital, a few were were seriously injured, including, I believe, a few members of the cabin crew. So hopefully they're all recovering nicely, but just some real, real violent vertical movement from the aircraft about 30 minutes before landing. They were cruising at 40,000 feet and they went up 300 and then down 800. Ooh, uh, that'll ruin your day. So that, of course, we will reiterate as always, as everyone always does, wear your seatbelt whenever you're seated, even if the seatbelt sign is not illuminated. It's for your own safety, not just because the crew likes repeating it over and over. But really, I I guess, unfortunate timing because 30 minutes is right about that point where the flight crew is probably just about ready to turn on the seatbelt sign. And when everyone is getting up to use the laboratory one last time for after a long flight from the, I think it was from the West Coast, was it? Was it an LA flight? Phoenix. Phoenix flight. So it's the West Coast. So it's a long flight. People are just getting up to use the lab for the last time. If this was like five or 10 minutes later, the seatbelt sign probably would have been on and people would have been already buckled in. So really, really unfortunate timing here. But once again, can't stress enough, always wear your seatbelt, even when you're seated. You can't go wrong with that. 
Yeah, exactly. That time is always such a weird time when like you're packing your things up that you've had at your seat. If you've had your laptop out, you're putting it away and and everyone's getting up to, to use the lab and all sorts of stuff before the before they begin their descent. But this is the incident was is and was bad enough that the NTSB is investigating to see what happened and to learn from that. So I honestly don't remember the last time the NTSB investigated a turbulence related incident where there wasn't like an aircraft defect component included. Yeah, I do wonder what exactly it is they're investigating or expecting to find other than plane was bouncy and people hit the ceiling. Like, uh, I'm sure there will be some interesting insights. Maybe there's some recommendations on, on materials on board or something like that on, on how they can lessen the impact of injuries in extreme turbulence situations. I, I would read that report. But yeah, very interesting to see them them interested in this incident. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll definitely have to keep an eye on what that report eventually says. I don't know if they'll make a full report. I'm not sure in this type of event how that all works out. Maybe some NTSB investigators just wanted to go to Hawaii for Christmas. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if they traveled. I mean, I don't know if they traveled to the to Hawaii. But interesting theory, Jason. Interesting Mm -hmm, theory. mm -hmm. Let's stay in Hawaii and talk about some news, well, from the NTSB this week. The investigation into the Transair 737-200 ditching into a bay, I believe it was about 50 miles south of, of Hawaii. It departed, lost both engines, and couldn't make it back to Honolulu. And the NTSB updated the docket this week with information that includes the interviews with the flight crew, as well as some other factual information. So this is not a final report. They have not reached the conclusions about why the engines did what they did or made any recommendations based on the crew's actions. But reading through the docket, it's clear that the two pilots were somewhat confused about which engine had actually failed at which time and how much thrust the aircraft had available. Yeah, it looks like the pilot flying asked the uh, first officer which issue is experiencing the issue. And he replied, and I'm reading this off of Flight Global, who put up an article with the transcript. And he said, uh, number two, an apparent reference to the right-hand power plant. The captain also said number two. Following that, there was some Back and forth where the captain responded is number one is gone as a question. And the first officer responded, it's gone. Yep. So we have number two. So there's definitely some confusion about which engine was out though. It doesn't, the NTSB doesn't come to this conclusion, but it doesn't appear as if there was an incident where the, the flight crew turned off the incorrect engine when one was experiencing issues that apparently neither of these engines were switched off. And if you're thinking about an incident that may sound familiar, it's another airline that actually has trans in the name. That was TransAsia, the ATR in Taiwan, I believe, where one of the engines experienced an issue and the flight crew accidentally shut down the wrong engine and they ended up crashing into a river just shortly after takeoff with that wild dash cam video from a couple of years ago. Doesn't seem to yeah. be exactly the same circumstances because neither of these engines were shut off. It does seem as, as, as if both failed for a reason we don't know, but there was indeed some confusion in the flight deck about uh, what exactly was going on. So we look forward to the final report issued by the NTSB eventually. And when they publish that, we will bring it to you. 
Absolutely. Let's stick with kind of regulatory and investigative things for the moment. This one was flagged, I believe, by Seth Miller, and he flagged EOS's update on an airworthiness directive for the A330neo engine, so the, the Rolls-Royce Trent 7000s. So they need a software update, as all things do these days. And this software update ensures that the engine icing protection stays working. That's always helpful. The Airworthiness Directive reads, uh, it has been determined that engine crystal icing protection could be temporarily lost if an erroneous total pressure value is provided by aeroplane systems. This condition, if not corrected, could lead to dual engine in-flight shutdown, resulting in reduced control of the airplane. And again, if that sounds familiar, that would be a callback to the British Airways 777-200 at Heathrow, which had a very similar incident where there were some ice crystals built up in a fuel filter and they had a dual engine flame out uh, on very short final at Heathrow and ended up really diving into the grass there. Thankfully, no one was significantly injured in that accident, but this airworthiness directive looks to prevent a very similar situation on the A330neo. I don't think that problem was solvable by a software update on the 777, but fascinating to see that you plug a USB cable or whatever into the 330 here and you, you fix this potentially deadly issue. You don't think they're using floppy disks on the A330 Neo? I mean, it is just based off the A330 CO, which is an aircraft from like that era. So it's possible, but (laughs) I hope not. I hope not. But there is an entire floppy disk industry based around the aviation industry still using floppy disks. So anything is possible. It tickles me every time I think about, you know, having to update navigation software on an airplane and there's a guy walking around with a, a floppy t- and and you can see the disk storage cabinet on every flight deck. I just love it. There's somewhere someone back in the 80s or 90s who invested in floppy three and a half inch floppy disks and dot matrix printers who is making an absolute killing off the travel industry right now. <laughs> Absolutely. Things that cannot be fixed by software include A380 wing spars. Uh, Airbus has sent 60 engineers to Dubai because as Emirates revives its A380 fleet, in some of the older A380s, they're finding wing spar cracks that need to be repaired. Wing spar cracks in the A380s are not new. This is a very legacy problem for this aircraft. So this is kind of one of those things where you just throw people at it. And in this case, Airbus has sent 60 engineers to go live and work in Dubai to to solve the problem while Emirates you know, bring, brings its A380 fleet back. So I guess at some point, any A380 issue is basically just an Emirates issue. And as we get further and further down the road uh, and other airlines begin to retire their A380s and Emirates keeps them around just because they have so many, it'll be interesting to see see what happens there. Does Airbus just kind of send a permanent contingent to, you know, you now work for Airbus in Dubai and you just maintain the Emirates A380s? Well, if there isn't already an uh, Airbus UAE office, um, I'm sure there will be in the not too distant future for this express reason. Yeah, just the AOG office. Okay. So now we get to the point where we can say people took airplanes home or they are starting new routes. And this week, Condor took delivery of its first A330neo 
the green beach towel inspired livery. That was also the aircraft that not long ago had an unfortunate incident with a uh, the side of a building in Toulouse pre-delivery. So whatever the issue ended up being there and however serious it was, they repaired it pretty quickly. All right. I guess it was just damage to the winglet, which happens more often than you would think. And you just pop it off, check for structural damage to the wing. And if there isn't any, you either leave the winglet off or you pop a new one on and you're good to go. They probably have a few sitting around in Toulouse. So, so that's good. But are they painted in green beach towel livery? I don't know. Are, are their winglets painted at all, actually, on, on that particular livery? You know what? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. That's a good question. I'll have to take a close. I don't know if I have a photo with at that resolution of just the winglet, but, but we'll take a look. Let's see. What else? The first ARJ-21-700 was delivered outside of China. And you know what? It's, it's the first Comac aircraft, period, to be delivered outside of China. Well, there you go. Not just the first ARJ-21. Even better. Indonesia's Transnusa Airlines. A lot of airlines with the word trans in the name this podcast. Look, they go across. They're flying across things. Trans, etc. I don't know what Nusa is. So like, I get like trans Air, Trans-Asia Airways. That makes sense. We fly across Asia. I don't even think they do that. I think they were just domestic Taiwan. Oh, there's that. But this airline is based in Jakarta, so it is possible. I love that a good aspirational airline yes. name. So they, they took delivery of the, the ARJ21, the Comac regional jet thing. Yeah, if you're not familiar, we'll paint a picture for you. The <laughs> ARJ21 is the definitely, definitely completely homegrown, not stolen idea at all, hybrid between an MD-80 and a CRJ-700. It is a dead ringer for the freaky child of those two aircraft. Not commercially successful, though. I think we talked about this last week. It's more of like a beta test for- Not the point. Yep. For Comac, but it is interesting that this aircraft would be delivered outside of China at all. I, I never really thought that would happen, but it is particularly interesting because this is not a new- Airline. This airline has an existing fleet of Airbus aircraft, even an A320 Neo, in fact. So it's at least a little interesting that we're, we're seeing an airline expand, breaking beyond Boeing and Airbus and, and opting for a uh, Comac aircraft, in this case, the ARJ21, rather than waiting for the C919, which I think is particularly interesting. We'll see how well. China can support this aircraft outside of its own boundaries. That was a big problem for the the uh, Russian-built Sukhoi Superjet, which had even less commercial success. That did get operated by Interjet in Mexico and Cityjet for a host of other airlines in Europe. And it was commercially very unsuccessful because they were just not able to get the the parts out for that aircraft. And many of them were, were grounded for extended periods and cannibalized. It was just not good. So in the long term, it will be interesting to see if uh, Comac is able to support the ARJ-21 outside of China. Indonesia is a lot closer to China than Mexico was to Russia. So it should be less of an issue, I guess. And hopefully they've also learned learned a lesson in how not to support an aircraft. But, yeah, and we'll see the you know kind of how well the aircraft is received outside of China by by other airlines. This isn't huge news, but it's just a, a funky little thing that I I wanted to flag. SAS is launching flights to Newark from Aalborg and Gothenburg beginning in April. 
they will be, I think they're both three times weekly. So in on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, out on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And they're all going to be operated by the A321LR. So this is in addition to SAS's kind of JFK standalone service that they're beginning, I think, near next, the end uh, of the year. February, I think. Or is it this year? Or is, I, I think it's next year, February. Okay. We talked about it in a previous episode, so so we should have that written down somewhere. So the JFK service stands alone. This will be seasonal service, April through, I believe, October. So basically the summer season. Interesting. Secondary markets. I mean, Sweden's second biggest city in is Alberg, Denmark's second biggest city. We'll have the stats desk check that out, which is yeah. to say I'll Google it later. Yes. Uh, SAS is definitely getting a little funky post-bankruptcy here with their 321s, throwing some darts at the the board to see what sticks. These are are particularly interesting, kind of reminiscent of the nonsense that Norwegian tried pulling with its 737s back in the day, transatlantic. But this is definitely interesting. Not cities I had at all on my list that would get transatlantic service to to New York, especially uh, these two particular cities were not, I don't think, on anyone's radar. But if they're doing it, SAS must have the data to prove that there is demand for it. So good luck to them. I like this because unlike with Norwegian, if there is any issue, if a flight is canceled, especially a three-weekly flight, if your flight's canceled, you're, you're kind of out of luck. This is a Star Alliance airline. So if your flight's canceled or significantly delayed, they'll book you on Lufthansa or something else, somebody else, even Finnair, like I was rebooked. So, Or you can take the daily 3.30 flight. And connect twice. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and and just fly to either Stockholm or or Copenhagen and and connect with no problem. Yeah, a lot of backups. um, Yeah, so it's it's interesting. I I wonder if it will be successful, but SAS does not have a lot of 321 Neo LRs to play around with. I think they only have three. So if they're they're doing this, they they must be – I'm not going to say desperate to find something to do with them, but I can't imagine that these two routes were at the top of the list of things to do with their precious few narrow-body, long-haul aircraft. We shall see. We shall see. And then finally, I guess some very good news as far as the Turkish Air Force is concerned. The two Turkish Air Force A400s that have been stuck in Ukraine since basically the eve of the Russian invasion, the 24th of February. They landed in in Kyiv and promptly got stuck there. They somehow remained either undamaged or or in good enough shape that they were easily made flyable. And on the 20th of December, so day before recording, they flew home. Yeah, and not just flew home, but they did so at high altitude, at least at 30,000 feet when you posted the screenshot. So they were pressurized, so they they couldn't have been too badly damaged. I would have expected them to fly at like 10,000 feet or something. If they were seriously damaged, they wouldn't be able to pressurize. But I guess they just got extremely lucky or maybe they were repaired somehow. But that is a long time on the ground there. Somebody is very happy to get those aircraft back. Yeah. They were not at Hostomel Airport, which is where the Antonov plant is and where there was heavy fighting and where the AN-225 was destroyed. They were at the the main international airport on the other side of Kiev. So perhaps that had something to do with it. But given the, the general bombardment of Kiev, I'm, I'm honestly surprised that they, they were in such good shape. Yep. Now all we have to wait for is uh, those Wizz Air aircraft to get out of there one day. 
I think they've got what three there now. Still, they got the the one out of out of Lavue, but it'll be a while. Yep. Okay, episode one hundred ninety five. That's done, which means that our year is done. This is the last kind of new episode of the year where we're going to talk about stuff that has happened. Next week, we'll have an episode up. It'll be kind of a recap of some of the good conversations we had over this year and some of the things that we talked about. And then we'll come back the following week with a new episode. So stay tuned for that. We might also do something not as a strict podcast next week, but perhaps on our YouTube channel. So if you're not following us on Twitter, now is a good time to start if you're interested in finding out more about that, if the stars align and Jason and I can can manage to, to work out uh, what we're going to do there. So in the meantime, thanks everyone so very much for, for listening this year. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast and listening to Jason and I and the other folks that have been on the show this year. As always, if you've got questions, comments, suggestions, criticisms, recipes, tips for anything, podcast at fr24.com is our email address, and we always take a look at those and read through them. So without further ado, I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening, and have a good new year. Mm -hmm.